welcome to the Recipes for Residency podcast, where we invite medical doctors from all stages of their training and ask them questions regarding their path to residency and how they were able to successfully match into the specialty of their choosing, and more importantly, the advice they would give to any student trying to match into the same field. My name is Austin Mefford. I'm a third-year medical student at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston, Texas, and I will be your host. Today's guest is Dr. Karen Zotter. Dr. Zotter graduated from Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine and completed her residency training in internal medicine at Baltimore City Hospital. From there, she went on to complete a fellowship in gastroenterology at Metro Health Medical Center and a fellowship in nutrition at St. Vincent's Charity Hospital, both in Cleveland, Ohio. Dr. Zotter is currently a professor and the co-director of the internal medicine clerkship at UTMB. Dr. Zotter, welcome to the show. How are you? Great. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. So what I like to do with people on the show is I just like to have you give the listeners a little bit of background on who you are and kind of how you found your way to medicine. Fun. Well, I started my um, sort of formative years in theater and thought that I was going to actually have a career in theater, but then realized when I was about 17 that that wasn't going to happen. And so then I decided I had to do something with my life, so I chose medicine. Um, and there are actually many parallels between the discipline and the art that goes into theater and the discipline and the art that goes into medicine. So maybe that's sort of a circuitous path, but that's kind of what happened. Okay. Well, that's interesting. I don't think that's the first. We've had a lot of people on the show talk about their kind of path to medicine. I, I think that's the first. What what parallels do you draw? Because they don't, they're not obvious, like apparent to me right now. So I think there's an enormous amount of discipline and um, growth and the ability to say, I need to work on this to get better at this um, in both disciplines. I think that there's a lot of people that you interact with. You do a lot of teamwork. You do a lot of codependence on other people to make something good happen. And I think that's also a parallel to medicine. Okay. No, I completely agree with you. It makes total sense when you say it like that. So why GI? Why GI? Why GI? So I fell in love with GI. Also, um, wasn't my plan when I started medicine. Um, I did some work as a medical student, um, and I became very interested in tropical medicine. And so I thought that I might want to be doing sort of international medicine, global health. And then I went to um, Rotterdam to work in an a international hospital there that took patients from coming to the port of Rotterdam with all sorts of medical problems, and I knew that they did tropical medicine there. And when I got there, I was doing a lot of stuff with the GI docs there and sort of fell in love with the GI aspects of tropical medicine. And then I thought, really, maybe what I love is GI and that's kind of it. So when I did my residency, I also realized that I really um, enjoyed caring for people that had primary GI presentations, both liver disease and hollow organ. And I thought... These are the patients that I feel I connect to really well and that I really um, look forward when I have an admission and it's a GI admission. It was always like, oh, great, I'll take it. So, you know, that, that kind of spells it out for you after a while. Sure, of course. Well, that's interesting. So do I'm, I'm from your intro, you also did a fellowship in nutrition because apparently residency and then a fellowship wasn't enough. You decided to do another one. Um, 
Do, is that pretty standard in GI? Do a lot of people do both? No, I think the interest in nutrition is as I continued in my GI fellowship, we're, you're required to do scholarly work or research as a, as a fellow. And I got um, very interested in body composition analysis, particularly in patients with liver disease and chronic muscle wasting. And there's a lot of GI um, diseases that affect the nutritional status of the patient. So I felt like doing a year focused on nutrition would help me with um, artificial nutrition if you put a feeding tube in a person or better understanding nutritional deficiencies in patients with chronic GI problems or liver disease. So that was kind of the, the way I went with that. Oh, wow. Okay. So yeah, very intuitive how you led from one thing to the next. I, I very much enjoyed that. So this is a point in the interview. I kind of talk about your specific journey to, I guess we'll, we'll focus this more towards the GI fellowship. Mm-hmm. Um, it is one of the more competitive specialties or fellowships coming out of internal medicine. So what would you say when someone is completing their internal medicine residency, what are some things that GI docs or GI programs like to see? Are they researched heavy or are they mentorship heavy or what exactly are we looking at here? I think it partly depends on the program and the programs do declare themselves. And if you look and now with the programs having lots of information up on the web, it's pretty easy to get a a pulse of a program Some programs are very, very academic and basic science research heavy. Some are more clinically focused with clinical research opportunities. And then there's a mix of everything. So when you're looking at a program, I think the most important thing is that you kind of have a sense of not what you want to do in GI, because even when you go into GI, you have to make choices, but that you have a sense of... I really like the academic part of it. I think I might want to stay in academia. You'll groom yourself one way. If you're like, I'm clear that what I want to do is be in practice, you'll kind of lean a little bit another way. And a program, it's super research heavy. If you know that you want to do almost full-time clinical care, it's probably not the best program for you. Sure. So those programs are also going to be looking at applicants with slightly different backgrounds. I think for me, regardless of what program you're looking at, if you want to prepare yourself for fellowship training, not just specifically GI training, is demonstrating some commitment to scholarly work while you're a medical student and a resident. So doing really well and taking really good care of your patients, but also showing that you're willing to put the extra effort out to develop something in addition to that. So it could be basic science research. It could be clinical research. It could be quality assurance work, um, whatever, but showing that you're making the commitment to go above and beyond writing up patient case histories, just getting excited about medicine. I think those are things that are important. Now that's not to say that people don't look, um, fondly at seeing a CV that has some publications on it. But if those publications were done purely to get you into fellowship, um, it means something a little bit different than if somebody's super enthusiastic or super kind of dedicated to, no, I just really like this and therefore I do it. And people have different 
talents and different things that draw them to scholarly work. So I think if you find something you love and you do it well, that's what I think people are looking for. Someone that's going to not just come and wait for people to say, do this and then leave. Right. right. No, I, I totally understand. And we, and we've had that echoed on the show a couple of times. Um, Dr. Townsend, he, he, we, we asked him about doing research and he says that research is important if it's meaningful research and you're not just doing it. So it goes on your CV. And then when they ask you about it in your interview, you kind of fumble around and give a very ambiguous answer because you didn't really care about it or you didn't do that much toward that research. So I think, I think you're exactly right. You know, just being enthusiastic and being able to talk about why you want to do this, what you're doing. And, and as I've mentioned before, it's, it, we get caught up as students, as residents trying to check those boxes on the CV. You know, you can look at the NRMP match data and all these things and you see how many publications and how many experiences and blah, 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 these people have. And so it gets a little bit overwhelming, especially for the more competitive specialties. But I think, I think that's very important to keep in mind is just being enthusiastic but let me ask you this. So this is the second fellowship um, interview that we've had. Most other ones have just been residency coming out of medical school. So we asked Dr. DeAnda in uh, CT surgery. He says that when applying to a CT fellowship out of general surgery, they look at not only research and not only like volunteer experiences and what have you, but also technical skills. So when you were in residency, how did you work with your hands? What were the things that you were doing during your time in that residency program does, but internal medicine doesn't have the same like technical component that maybe a surgery does. So do they have a, a similar standard? I, I don't think so. Uh, you know, GI has a lot of procedures, but those procedures are limited in scope. Okay. And I think what a surgeon does from a technical standpoint is much, um, more hand delicate we're using 90 percent of the stuff we're doing we're using a scope and so then you're doing things through the scope and there's certainly spatial understanding and sort of the ability to stay focused and do what you need to do and the ability to do sometimes things where you're not controlling it but most of it's done with that, not so much the really, you know, sewing a, we're not really sewing arteries together. Sure. So it's a little bit different. Sure. No, I completely understand. I just didn't know if there was a, another aspect that you would have coming out of residency that you necessarily wouldn't have coming out of, re of medical school applying. Okay. Well, so when it, so we talk a lot about mentorship on the show. That's kind of the, the ultimate reason why I started this podcast how important or what, what role did mentorship play in your path to GI or very powerful? Um, maybe not my path to GI okay. as much as my path once I got in GI. Okay. So we were all assigned mentors kind of our first day of fellowship and my mentor and I are still in touch and I finished my fellowship 30 years ago. You didn't have to say it's it. It's okay. I'm not, <laughs> not shy about it. Um, and so I still have contact with him. He was very influential. Um, he opened my eyes to things that I hadn't thought about before. He introduced me to some stuff in the lab that I had no idea what I was doing, and he was very patient with me. But he also taught me a lot about um, being a good doctor and being a good 
person in medicine and also about um, some of the ethics of research that I think that I sort of had maybe some idea, but he was very disciplined in making sure that, you know, when you're doing things that you understand that it's a team effort and that you are always including the people that need to be included. And, and that resonated with me forever. I mean, he was, he was great. And, and I'm so appreciative to have had that guidance and someone who really had my interest my success as his interests. Right. That was just a real gift. And I love that to have, to have kind of a life coach, you know, that you've been established this relationship forever. Uh, is, is in my position, we think of mentorship as please, please, please help me match into whatever specialty, but it's so much more than that. You know, it's on, even in residency, how to be a successful resident and how to be a successful doctor. And then ultimately how to be a good person, how to be a successful person. Um, it, all important things that you may or may not think about whenever we're thinking about mentorship and you were lucky. I mean, they assigned him to you or, um, what about people who necessarily, so at UTMB, we have mentors that are assigned to us, but maybe at some institutions, people listening, they may not have that. So what advice do you give to people who are actively searching mentorship and they kind of have to do the legwork all on their own. Yeah, I would say, so there, there's a lot of science behind mentorship. There's a lot of like research that's been done about mentorship. And I think there are two things. One is there's chemistry between you and your mentor. Um, and so you have to find someone that you can really connect with and you, and develop a trust, right? That's so important. And I think, um, that isn't always the person that you think it's going to be. Um, sometimes somebody just sort of shows up and says, you know, I want to make sure you do well. And so if that's my goal, I'm going to be your, um, coach. I'm going to be your cheerleader and I'm going to be your tough love, you know, but if you want this, we'll work together towards that. And, and sometimes those people, somebody will just say, Hey, have you thought about talking to so-and-so and, and maybe they'd be willing to mentor you? Like, no, I hadn't even thought about that person. Like, oh yeah. So a lot of it is word of mouth. If you get assigned a mentor, I think setting goals with your mentor is really, really important. Um, so they know where you are and they know what you are moving towards because it's really hard to guide somebody if you don't have that back and forth. So you have to be able to say, I know you think this is good for me. It's really not what I'm interested in right now, but how do I, how do we compromise? Like, right. And, and so it's, it's a, a mentor a role as a mentor is a complicated role as is a role as a mentee, right? Sure. Being a, being a good mentee is hard work. Being a good mentor is hard work. And I think you can look around and say, this person knows that career pathway. They'd be a good mentor. Sometimes it's, a good mentor isn't necessarily in that career pathway, but they have your interest in mind and they know everybody else. And they'll say, I can't advise you on this. We'll send you to that person, but then come back to me and we'll work together. Sure. So I would say, look for someone that you trust and that you know will be honest and frank with you and really have your best interest in mind. Even if it's not what they have passion for and love, it's your best interest in mind. And that, 
that to me is a great mentor. Sure. It's, it's all about the, the dynamic, you know, and we've had people on the show can compare it to dating. Uh, your mentor is, I mean, you're growing together, you're establishing a relationship, that chemistry that you were saying. And also we've been told on the show to just, I mean, if you don't have a mentor, ask, like, will you be my mentor? Will you be a mentor for me? And you may get rejected and that's fine. Um, and, but you know, I mean, that's, that's part of it. But I, I like I like your perspective on that. That's something that um, I don't think we've had spoken on the show before. So very good insight on that. So, and I would also add to a student that if you cold call somebody to be your mentor and they say no, the reason may be that they know that mentor being a good mentor is a big time commitment, and they honestly just don't feel they can make that commitment well. Sure. So I would say don't feel. Like, oh, I've been rejected. Now I'm afraid to do it again. Just say, okay, this it's not going to work out with this person right now. Let me see if there are other people available. And just keep pursuing it because I think that relationship um, is so important. Sure. No matter where you are in your career. And probably for the better. I mean, you would want them to say no rather than say yes and do and kind then, of a half you-know-what job. Not, sure. not because they're being malicious, but just because they don't have time or they right. don't know you well enough. You know, something like that. Absolutely. So... Specifically with GI, when we're talking about internal medicine, is it common for people pursuing a GI fellowship to have a GI mentor in residency? Not necessarily a mentor, but certainly advisors within GI or working on something with people in GI. Um, Some of it is because that's what you love and you want to do it because it's fun. And some of it is also... I think getting to know the people in that division at your own institution, which if you're interested in staying at your own institution, of course, is important. But also, again, medicine is pretty connected. And so if we're looking at letters of recommendation, we'll recognize people from other programs and they'll say, well, we know this person. Um, We're very impressed with the work they do. We would love to have them stay here Um, we think, you know, we think if wherever they match, they're going to do well. And, and you, when you know the person writing that letter, um, because it's a, a colleague in another institution in GI, that can be really meaningful. Um, and so I think having some activity within your own GI department at your institution, but again, because you really want to do it, not because you're doing it to prep yourself for a fellowship application. It's the same thing that we talked about with residency. Sure. Doing it because you're excited about it, doing it because you love it, doing it because if I'm going to spend some spare time doing something, this is what I want to be doing. Right. Right. And I think that also just comes through loud and clear and you can really tell. Sure. And you unpacked a lot there, which was really good. So you anticipated some other questions that I have. So with letters of recommendation, some specialties um, are very exclusive um, almost to where they want the letters of recommendation that they see to be from faculty in that field exclusively. Would you say the GI is one of those? No, I wouldn't. I think... I want to know from somebody who really knows the resident and if it's somebody they worked with or somebody they worked with over a couple of months or maybe it was someone who they had ambulatory clinic with over time. We want to know that somebody can 
can work hard, is not afraid of working hard, um, can be a team player. Those are super important, you know, in residency and fellowship and for the rest of your life. Um, is teachable, right? So can learn new skills, um, takes feedback well, and those things are good residents and that will come out. You'll read that in the letter and you'll say, oh yeah, this is a person that we can grow into the next level of training. And so those are the people that you're looking for. Um, so whether it comes from the, the chief of GI at some other institution who says, you know, this person did a project and I work with them for two weeks and they did a really good job, or it comes from a resident, um, somebody in the residency program who says, this is one of our superstar residents. I would send anybody in my family to see this person. You know, you have to weigh out the source versus what you learn from those letters. And, and those letters do become important because, you know, you get hundreds of applications for a few spots. And so you want to be able to say, this is a person I think that will match well with the style of program that we have with what we're looking for. Of course. And, and that's kind of what everybody wants. You want to match to a program that will let you do the things that you are best at doing and not force you to do things that you're like, that's really not the direction my career is going or not really what I'm interested in. Then you're going to be miserable. So right. It's just not right. the way to go. Not good for anyone. Um, so, and we, we've, we've kind of talked about this on the show with previous guests. It, as students or residents, you know, we have a tendency to kind of seek out that person that's the most prestigious, whether it's the chief of blah, 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 and they have a bunch of letters and degrees and everything and everyone loves them. And seek letters from those people, even if they don't know us as well, versus someone who may not be as renowned, but knows you longitudinally that knows you better and could say positive things like, I wish this person would stay here. Or I would send my family to go see this person. And I think as you were saying, that's what's more important. And I think just me speaking to the listeners right now that it's important to remember that and instead of just let it go in one year and out the other. And I have to remind myself of that too. You know, it's, it's always obviously nice to have someone nationally known to write you a letter, but if it's a very mediocre letter and you can tell based on the wording that they really don't know you, then it's not really doing you any good. And so, but building off what you were saying at other institutions, the chief at other institutions talking about away rotations, is so I'm personally very unfamiliar with how away rotations would work in a fellowship setting. Um, in medical school, you do it your fourth year of medical school. D are away rotations a thing for GI or no? Not particularly. I think the only time someone would do something away would be if there was a center of excellence and they were saying, gosh, I really think I might want to go that direction. But when remember that in residency and a fellow, you are an employee of the institution. So away things are a lot more complicated. But again, if there was a center of excellence and we didn't have that to offer or we had it and it was basic and the other institution was like, this is the place you go to learn this, then probably arrangements could be made. And I know in the past, um, occasionally a fellow has gone somewhere for a, a, an elective rotation, but it's not common. It's, it's really not residents either. It's, you just don't see it very much. Well, and that's, and I didn't even think about that, the, that you work for the hospital and you can't say, okay, I'm going to take this many months off and go work. Yeah. They're going to be like, yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> so it, an interesting perspective there. I didn't even think about that. So then let me ask you this. So it is obviously very common for people 
going through medical school to match in a specialty that is not at their home institution. Um, would you say that for fellowships, specifically for GI, is it more common for you to stay? You did not, but is it more common for people to stay at their home institution because they have that longitudinal relationship with their faculty? Because away rotations as a med student is a huge way for you to tell a program, I'm very interested in this program, I want to work for you. Or also, mm, I did this and I didn't really like the vibe, I don't want to work for you. Um, so how do, how do people kind of gauge that from not being able to do away rotations? Again, I, I think some of it becomes geography. So sometimes people do their residency and they have a spouse or a significant other. And it's like, okay, we're going to go there for residency. But when residency is over, I want to go back home. Right. And so you may be focusing on another part of the country or another, um, you know, even, even another city where you're like, you know, I, I love my program. I love the people here would be interested in staying here, but I made a commitment that I would be going back to home. Sure. Um, and so I'm going to really focus my application there. So again, there's lots of factors that play in your, you finished med school, you've done three years of residency. You're going to do at least three more years of fellowship. You, you know, you're getting to that phase in your life where other things start to, to play in. So sure. yes, people stay at their own institutions. Um, there's nothing negative about that and i think people if you know your institution you know the training you know the people the transition becomes easy um but a lot of people go other places for a number of reasons sure okay so let me transition to um kind of the part of the interview where i ask kind of miscellaneous questions and dr zotter is massive in her commitment to medical student uh, education here at utmb so i'm very curious to hear what you have to think about this question step one pass fail she's smirking at me across the table i said just so you guys know what are your thoughts on that is it a good thing is it not a good thing or is it an eh thing it has, it's depends on the lens that you're looking at it through. Okay. So I think over time, step one turned into something that it was never supposed to turn into. And again, I've already told you I've been doing this for 30 years. So sure. um, step one used to be the focus of a licensing exam. You do step one, you do step two, you do step three, you become eligible for a license. And then step one turned into this sort of um, huge transition point and the score became this sort of driving thing. Um, and it turned into, and you've taken step one and so have hundreds of other students that I've talked to, It consumes you quite literally it literally consumes you and the anxiety and the stress and everything else that you see students well it's january the second year class is now going to shut down sure is really difficult because you feel like there's so many other things we could be growing you you could be learning you could be growing you could be experiencing and you're focused You've blocked the world out because you have to take this test, right? So from that standpoint, I think the pass-fail is a good thing because maybe students will be less worried about the difference between a 
240 and a 250 and a 260 and work hard and be proud of the work they do, not say, I only have to get an X to pass, so I'm going to do a mediocre job, because that's not the typical behavioral pattern of a medical student. Sure. Most students are driven and bright and want to do well because they're proud of the work they do. So, I, But maybe the, the stress of the number will become less, um, although some students will still want that. Um, from the way many things have been built over time, that number has become important to residency programs and fellowship programs. So there's now going to be a retraining of what are we truly looking for in the applicant, right? Because now this number can no longer be the first cut to throw a stack of applications away. So it becomes a responsibility on both sides for medical schools to provide truthful and adequate information to residency programs and then subsequently to fellowships to say, this is truly a student who has those skills, who's really somebody that will do well in your specialty. Um, and, and some of that was buffered out. So medical schools and medical education has a new set of responsibilities and residency programs need to be telling us, because I work dominantly in undergraduate medical education, mm -hmm. what they need from undergraduate medical education to help them understand who the student really is or who the applicant really is. And do you think they, they know at this point? Well, I think we're in the transition year, right? And so I think you could go back and historically say, well, let's cover all the step scores and think about the students that we did accept and who did what. But if you've already had a cut and you never accepted anybody below that, you you can't really do that. Right? Sure. So I think we're all in this really steep learning curve right now. Um, and it's it'll be an interesting transition. I, I don't know the answers, but I think truly from where we sit in medical education and in undergraduate medical education, we want to make sure that we're doing best for our students and that we're providing the information to a residency program so they know who they're getting, mm -hmm. right? Of they, course. Because, I mean, that's the only fair and reasonable thing for the student and for the residency program. So then let me, let me kind of say the, the sentiment among my classmates and a lot, of, a lot of people in the medical community, you know, I live on Reddit like medical school Reddit, which is horrible for my mental health, but it is what it is. I, um, the, the sentiment is that step two is going to make its way down to the step one level and now be the throw half of these applications in the trash, which is kind of defeats the purpose of what step one being pass fail was for, because arguably with all the good intent that there was making step one pass fail, there are going to be those programs that are still going to want that objectifiable number because they have a number of applications to their program and they can't possibly look at all of them. And so I was just wondering what you thought about that and how, what, what role you think step two is now going to play in residency applications. Right. Well, it will play a role. It will play a different role. But also remember that a lot of students haven't taken step two when they're applying to residency. They haven't taken it yet or they don't have a score reported yet. So 
they may still interview people and then will that matter when they're actually ranking? I don't know. Um, I don't know what people are thinking on that, on, on that front. The, the thing about all these exams, and, and you kind of alluded it to this, is that a national exam says student, this student, when you compare him or her to this cohort across the nation from every medical school is performing at this level, right? And so that's what a national exam does. And it, and it's important, right? Because medical schools are different and what they stress is different and their missions are different. And the students that they're, um, turning out have to have core knowledge, have to have core skills. There's no question about that, but they're different. Sure. Right. And so this was a, a number that everyone could look at and say, well, I don't really know much about how that medical school works or what their mission is or what their, their sort of goals and objectives. In, in, in shaping a student would be, but the student got an X on this. So I know at least on a multiple choice test, they had the knowledge that they needed to do well. Um, you know, and so it, it was, a, it's an important stepping stone and has been used as an important stepping stone. And the issue is it's gone. And so we have to think of new ways and not just say, well, we have step two, so the heck with it. I mean, I think we have a responsibility as educators to make sure, again, that we are communicating to our students what the expectations are and communicating to the future programs. This is the student we're turning out. Right. And we can only hope that most people that are in charge of undergraduate medical education have the same commitment and mentality that you do, because I mean, we would hope that they would not just say, Oh, well, we have step two, because as a medical student, that's where our mind goes. And I've, I've spoken to people in the class below me and they're already studying for step two They're They will take step one as kind of like a benchmark to their step two, uh, preparation. And, um, I mean, so be it. I mean, that, that's just kind of where they, this, the people that I've spoken to that they're at, and that's kind of the consensus they were speaking in their class. But I I agree with you. I think that it's a transitional year. We'll see how it is. And maybe there will be a a change in the, the timing of people taking step two residency programs may now really want to see that step two score, because that's going to be the only one that they have. And if they really value that objectivity, um, And something that we had mentioned on the show earlier is that the unfortunate, I mean, this is just a, a speculation, but the notoriety of your medical school will arguably carry you further. Now that step one is pass fail. Someone from Harvard who has a pass is arguably better than someone from a lower ranked medical school with a pass as, as far as like a residency program is looking at the applicants. And, and, and I, I know that that is not necessarily the objectifiable truth, but you know, it's, it's a subjective, it's a subjective thing where people, um, and so I think step one and those, the scores allow students from lower tiered med schools to say, okay, well, I didn't get into Harvard. I didn't get into Johns Hopkins, but I knocked it out of the park on these tests and I know what I'm doing. And so, I mean, it's, it, you can look at it both ways. I mean, I asked this question, not because there's a right or a wrong answer, but just because I like to hear what, what the faculty have to say. But again, I think the residency programs have a 
new responsibility now to say to the medical schools, we want to see these things in your student letters. Um, your your in in the Department of Internal Medicine, we have the chair letter, or now mm-hmm. the standard letter of evaluation, um, that has some structure to it that allows you to read a letter from one school and look at a letter from another school and get a sense that the student did these things, the student met these skill levels. And the residency programs kind of need to say, we need to be seeing this so that the schools can make sure that we are gathering those data from students and that we're also projecting them forward. Right. It doesn't matter if it's Harvard or a different school. We all have to be speaking a similar language and saying, yes, this is a student we know will succeed. Sure. No, I completely agree. So now let me ask you two more questions. Um, the second to last one, um, I know most of your time is spent on medical student education, but whenever you're in clinic, in the hospital, and you have students that are on your service or residents that are on your service. What are some things that you really like to see in people that are interested in GI and you go, hmm, like good quality, uh, definitely fond of this person. And then what are some things that kind of irk you and that you don't necessarily like to see in people on your service? Okay. So my clinical work now is pretty limited. Okay. Um, so I occasionally have people working with me. Sure. What, to me, the most important thing is early communication about, okay, we're going to do this together today. What are your goals? What do you want to get out of it? And what do you want me to give you feedback on? I think having that conversation up front, because all too often somebody... I think people go into stuff and they're and they're just like really excited about something. It's like, okay, what are we what are we working on today? Like, what do you want to get out of this? Because I can tailor this any way you want. Um, and and what would I would think personally irk me at this point in my career with with the limited contact that I have. I mean, because I attended on Gen Med wards. Of course, done, and that's yeah. more of what I'm referencing. Right, right. Um, I think. Um, lack of interest and also um, being non-genuine. Like internal medicine is super broad, right? It's It covers a huge spectrum of diseases. And it's okay to know that there are some parts of internal medicine you like better than others. There's no shame in that, right? So to to be able to say, these are the things that I really, really, really like. These are the things that are harder for me or I'm not as interested in, but I want to learn them and it's going to be harder for me to learn them. That's okay too. I think it's just being upfront, genuine and feeling safe having those conversations. And so I think what I enjoy is when somebody can come to me and say, I feel okay about this. I don't feel okay about this. This is what I want to work on. Or I feel okay about this, but I want to get even better at this. Teach me something or watch me and give me feedback so I can just turn it up a bit. So it's the, it's the sort of introspection. I think that really just, Oh wow, this is a fun person to work with. I think the, um, how can I get out of this? When can I leave? Um, 
you know, you don't have to, you don't have to live and breathe medicine. Well, you kind of do. You kind of do. do. I was going to disagree yeah, with you. And that's okay because that's what you've chosen for your, for your career pathway. And, and it is, there is no, you don't stop doing medicine and have a life. It, right. it becomes a, a big part of your life. Of course. But I, but I also think to, to, to prioritize the things that are important and to learn to do that and to do that because it's genuine and not because you're checking a box. Right. And, and you can pretty quickly see through that. Like who's here checking a box and who's here because they're truly interested. And I think that's, that's what gives me joy and irks me. Right. It's like, don't waste my time. <laughs> right. Right. No, I, I, I very much like that. And I, I like hearing different perspectives and, you know, different one thing I've learned being on the wards for however many seconds I've been on the wards in third year, just because it's my third week here. So I, my, my experience is very limited, but I've had three attendings already and everybody likes different things. Oh. And so it's just one of those things you read the room, you adapt and not disingenuously, but you know, I mean, certain people you can be a little more sarcastic with some people you can joke about a little bit more. Some people are a little bit more serious and you kind of read the room, you pick up on those things, which is a skill by the way. And one that I have learned the hard way at one too many times probably, but hopefully now we're okay. But I, I, I like it. I like the human part of medicine. I like the genuinity of medicine and it, it's, and I agree with you. You can, you can usually see even me. I mean, I can see when I have colleagues that are on the service that that's what they want to do. They, they act very different and it's whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, maybe they're just very interested in it. But I mean, I'm not going to lie and say that there, some people do not have a little bit of like, a, uh, this is so-and-so rotation. I don't really care. I'm doing derm or whatever, you know, and I, I think being interested because medicine is freaking interesting. All of it is. And, and it may not be exactly what you want to do, but that doesn't mean that you can just check out and whatever, because when you're third, in third year, you're in fourth year, your lack of caring and lack of interest is going to end up affecting the quality of care that your patients are getting. And that, I mean, if you're interested in any type of medicine, that is the number one goal is quality of patient care. And, and I think as a third year student, understanding what you like is also part of that growth process. Because you can say, well, I didn't think I had any interest in discipline X. Um, and then you do that rotation and you're like, oh my goodness, I had no idea that this is what doctors in this discipline do. I love this. Right. And I'm going to change my pathway. I had no idea and the bug bit me and now I'm just like head over heels. This is how I want to spend my life. That's what third year is about, right? You can come in and you can think. Oh yeah, this is what I want to do. And you may end up third year and saying, I'm absolutely sure that's what I want to do mm -hmm. now. But a lot of students come in third year and we often will ask them like first year. So what do you want to do? And, and they'll say something and you kind of look at them and you think, no, you're not. There's no way. <laughs> and, and then, um, something changes or they, they see something. So I think everything you do as a medical student makes you a better doctor. And even if it's not the thing you love, the thing that you also have to remember is no matter what you do, you are dependent on every other discipline for the best care of your patient. Mm -hmm. So if I don't, I didn't choose to do, well, I chose to do internal medicine, right? Um, so I didn't choose to do those other things, but it doesn't mean that when I was on those services, 
I wasn't thinking as an internal medicine doc, if I don't understand this, that's the person I'm going to refer to because this is what they do and this is their specialty and my patient's going to get really good care if I send them to OB-GYN or I send them to neurology because I've capped out what I can do. They need someone who knows this better or more intensely or in a depth that I don't have. So you learn from everybody and you're all colleagues. And I think that part of it never goes away. Mm-hmm. And, and you stay a better doctor if you just, yeah, I didn't choose to do that. It's not my thing, but I still love hearing about it. Right. right? And as long as you can do that, you'll be a, the best doc you can be. I like it. Thank you for sharing that. That was nice. So last question. Yeah. We're big on resources. Um, whether they be online or newsletters or whatever, I usually just kind of end the podcast by asking if someone, if I'm an internal medicine resident and I'm applying to GI, what resources are you going to give me that I can go look up and find research opportunities or mentorship or things like that specific to GI? Right. So now with the web, I think to me, the, the question I always ask people when they're like, well, I want to go do X. First question is, do you have geographic limitations? Because if you, if you think, well, I, I'm interested, but I really want to be, we're in Texas. I really don't want to leave Texas. Then you think you want to do X or you think you want to do some research in X. Then, then kind of look in that area and, and read about the programs. The programs publish a lot of good stuff. Um, as far as reading resources or, or opportunity resources, speaking of, um, kind of just national or state kind of heads of gastroenterology websites, American gastroenterologic association. So the AGA is definitely a phenomenal resource. The American college of gastroenterology they have slightly different flavors. Okay. Um, there is the um, American Association for Liver Disease. Um, I think I've not said the name of that group correctly, but there is a large um, organization that focuses dominantly on liver disease. Okay. And all of those national organizations are great places to go to find out who's doing what. Um, and to learn about, um, they publish practice guidelines. Those are the sorts of things that you want to be staying on top of, like who's a new, a new practice guideline came out, who wrote it, where's it from, who worked on it. I'm super interested in X. Oh, these are names that I need to become familiar with. I need to be reading their work mm-hmm. that, you know, it sort of spirals down and back up again, but the AGA and the, um, American Gastroenterologic Association and American College of GI are the two big GI groups. And then the liver groups are um, focused on a little more sub, sub-GI, sub almost sure. sub-specialty GI. Of course, right? of yeah. course. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much for that. I will definitely link those resources in the show notes, and it'll just be a link where you guys can click on it, and it'll take you straight there. Um, and if it's okay with you, I would like to put our email addresses in the show notes as well. If someone would like to contact you about GI or really anything medical student education based, Dr. Zotter is a very busy lady, always running around, educating people, doing what she does best. Um, and 
Uh, I think that's all the questions we have for today. Thank you so much, Dr. Zotter, for coming You're on. You're very welcome. Thank it was, you for having it was, us. It was, it was a, a lot of fun. It was a joy, of course. So thank you guys for tuning in. And if you want to learn more, stay tuned for more ingredients on the Recipes for Residency podcast. Mm-hmm.